Bibles out and turn to Luke chapter 7. Luke chapter 7, we are uh, continuing a journey through the gospel of Luke. Uh, we've been calling it the doctor's cure. Um, the doctor has really a, a, refers to two people. The writer of the book of Luke was a physician, but the cure really wasn't his. That's is true with doctors today. The cures are not theirs. They're found in laboratories and so forth. Uh, the, the problem is the broken heart, and the cure is Jesus. And so really, it's not, Luke's not the, that physician. Jesus is that physician. And the cure is the gospel which Jesus offers us. When I was, um, when I was growing up, when I was a, been a teenage boy, if you would have talked to me and asked me, who do you think would make a good follower of Jesus Christ? There's one category of people that I would have not included in that. And that was people in the military. Now, many of you know I grew up in an Anabaptist background, a Mennonite background, and, and we moved in almost exclusively Mennonite circles. And so I didn't know anyone that served uh, in the military. And through my upbringing, would have thought that those people would have been outside of God's plan by virtue of their profession. Uh, they're ungodly. <laughs> In, God, in God's sense of humor, I ended up having a son that served in the army for 11 years. And one of the surprising blessings of those years was the number of godly soldiers and officers that my wife and I had the privilege to meet. Um, I still remember the night the recruiter came to our house and uh, he short guy, handsome guy. We spent about two, three hours with him that night. And we found out very quickly that Donnie was a follower of Jesus. And um, we had some good conversation about that. And toward the end of the meeting, I was, as a dad, con concerned about one thing. How can you make sure my son stays safe? And so there was conversation about uh, him going into intelligence and so forth. And I didn't know a lot about that field. I'm thinking, I'm not sure that's safe. I think spies, and that doesn't sound safe. And so I was asking him, I said, Donnie, I said, uh, would this be um, rear echelon, you know, is he back on the back lines and so forth? And I'm asking all these leading questions and it got quiet and he looks me in the eye and he says, Mr. Rory, he said, do you know the Lord? <laughs> and I said, yes, sir, I do. And then he said, well, then you probably should trust the Lord with your son. That was a good sermon. <laughs> uh, our son enlisted and spent nine months enlisted and ended up, ended up going to West Point. And I had a cousin that um, contacted us. He said, listen, when you get to West Point, he said, there's a, uh, there's a colonel there that's in charge of the um, PT program. And they're good friends of ours. We met them at a church in State College when he was there studying for his doctorate. And said, just give them a call. They'd probably be glad to open their home to you when you take Cameron up, when you visit, and so forth. And I'm thinking, I'm not going to call some total stranger about staying at their house. And so we didn't call him. And about a week later, my cousin's wife called Betty and said, did you call Donna yet? No, no, we didn't call Donna yet. She said, well, you really need to. They would be delighted to have you. And so we eventually did call. And sure enough, they said, sure, when you bring your son up, just plan on staying here for those couple of days. And when plebe weekend rolls around you come and stay with us and and over those next four years we uh, grew very fond of them and had wonderful friendship 
talk about the, not only talk about what was happening in West Point, but talking about the work of God even at West Point. He, uh, Colonel Daniels told me at that time there was a faculty, about 950 faculty at West Point. He said probably half of them are followers of Jesus. That was just blew my world apart. And then I remember the, when we were visiting Cameron and Brittany in, in Missouri uh, a number of years back when he was stationed there. And they took us uh, to their small group meeting one night. And in this room are about six uh, couples, families. They spend five hours together every week. They get together for dinner, and then they break up, and then they um, pray together, and they study the scriptures together, and then they challenge each other. And to listen to that group, all of whom were either current or ex-military, around that group, challenging each other to be faithful to Christ, to be obedient to Christ, to, to be prayerful about the lost people around them was so encouraging to us. And, and we'd watched our, our son really just growing in the Lord those last number of years, <laughs> even to the extent that the youth pastor at that church who was in that meeting that night pulled me aside uh, afterwards. Uh, maybe he actually said it during the, the evening. He said, uh, there was a, some time ago where Cameron pulled me aside and really challenged me in how I was treating my wife. And I'm like, whose son was that? And I was just so thrilled to watch men and women who are bearing the banner of armed forces who are saying, but my ultimate banner is the cross of Jesus Christ. Now I want to ask you a question this morning as I had to wrestle through that kind of prejudice and bias. Who are the people in your mind, whether as a group or individuals, that you think are outside of the blessing of God. They should be outside of the blessing of God. Who are the people that you would be flabbergasted to learn have faith? And maybe the question that follows that, how has that shaped you, whether praying for people or talking to people about Jesus because of those reservations. Let's read this story together. We'll pray, then talk about it. When, beginning verse uh, 1 in Luke 7, when Jesus had finished saying all this to the people, he returned to Capernaum. Now, he has just concluded the Sermon on the Plain. That's different than the Sermon on the Mount, but content much the same. He's finished with that. He goes back to Capernaum, which is now his adopted home. At that time, the highly valued slave of a Roman officer was sick and near death. When the officer heard about Jesus, he sent some respected Jewish elders to ask him to come and heal his slave. And so they earnestly begged Jesus to help the man. If anyone deserves your help, he does, they said. For he loves the Jewish people and even built a synagogue for us. And so Jesus went with them. But just before they arrived at the house, the officer sent some friends to say, Lord, don't trouble yourself by coming to my home. I'm not worthy of such an honor. I'm not even worthy to come and meet you. Just say the word from where you are, and my servant will be healed. I know this because I'm under the authority of my superior officers, and I have authority over my soldiers. I only need to say, go, and they go, or come, and they come. And if I say to my slaves, do this, they do it. When Jesus heard this, he was amazed. By the way, this is the only time in the New Testament or in the gospel accounts that 
This particular word, word is used to describe Jesus' perception of someone's faith. He was amazed, and turning to the crowd that was following him, he said, I tell you, I haven't seen faith like this in all of Israel. And here's a footnote. Probably everybody that was in that crowd was Jewish. And when the officer's friends returned to his house, they found the slave completely healed. The father, um, this story leads some of us, certainly me, our minds in some interesting, thought-provoking, and maybe even challenging areas. It asks me some hard questions about what's in my heart as I look around at people. And we don't want to miss that today if it's you scrutinizing us, if it's the Holy Spirit plumbing the depths of our hearts and our prejudices and our fears and our anxieties and dare we say it, even perhaps our hatreds. And it puts that in relief, in contrast to the love of Jesus Christ for the world. And so we don't want to miss that. We give you um, room to move this morning. The Holy Spirit, go wherever he needs to go. And on the other hand, we pray that you would bind the enemy who hates you, who hates us, who hates when we obey, who hates when we think and we love like Jesus did and does, who hates when we repent, who hates when we step out of the circles we uh, circle ourselves with. And we pray that he'd have no influence on us this morning. Um, God, I hate when I preach for my own purposes, and so I pray that that would not happen this morning that instead yours would be accomplished, I'd be hidden, and Jesus would be made much of for his sake and the advance of his kingdom, we pray. Amen. All right, I'm going to ask two questions this morning. Whom do you expect God to bless? And secondly, whom do you expect to have faith? As you look around, circles that you move in, the spheres that you're connected within, uh, with who do you expect God to bless and whom do you expect to have faith? Now, the situation at hand was a Roman officer who's got a servant that he loves and cares about. He's dying, needs help. <clears throat> and Jesus has been around long enough now that word has gotten out. There's a new rabbi in town. He's got some incredible powers. He's healing people left and right. He's casting out demons. Um, he is, he's teaching in a way unlike we've ever heard before. He doesn't teach as if he's, he's teaching other rabbinic teachings. He teaches like like it's his own teaching. Word had spread far enough that even a Roman officer had heard about him and there's no hospital nearby for him to send his servant to. There's, there's no physicians, there's no drugs like we might have access to. If, if he doesn't get some sort of miraculous intervention, he's gone. And so he has a relationship with the Jewish people to some degree and he sends these Jewish elders to Jesus to press his case. Now, it, it's interesting just to think about this relationship because you have to know that Roman soldiers 
did not have a very good reputation. Roman officers would not have been, uh, we have some wonderful uh, military officers in our armed forces today, not all of them, but some wonderful ones, and there's some, there's some good ground rules that keep them in check. That was not the case in 30 A.D. You remember the story when a Roman soldier went to get baptized by John the Baptist, and he asked John, what should I do now? Now that I've received this baptism of repentance, what should I do now? You've given other people instructions. I'm a soldier. What do I do? And John told him two things. One, be satisfied with your pay. Roman soldiers didn't get paid a lot. And two, harm no one. Now, as a, as a boy, I thought that meant get out of the military, but he doesn't say that. And you have to understand that ancient armies were not looked forward to them being in town. Because before and after the, the, the battle, things were just ugly. Pillaging, raping, taking this, taking that was not good for the people that were in town before and after battle. And so the fact that this pagan soldier has some kind of rapport with these religious Jewish elders is very strange. Now, a couple of things that happened, one that we know of, he had paid for a synagogue. Now, if this was in Capernaum, you can go there today and still see the, the foundation of that synagogue there 2,000 years later. But in fairness, that was not completely out of character for Roman officers. They had money, unlike their soldiers, and they, it, was, it paid them to pay for peace in the area where they were overseeing what's going on. And so sometimes they would buy a synagogue to, to kind of win the favor of the Jewish people whom they were an occupying force for. But the Jews didn't typically like the Romans because they were an occupying force and because the, the military stuff was never, never good for you when they were in town. And they're, they're, they're Gentiles. Ugh. They're dirty. They're crude. They're immoral. Jewish people worshipped one, the one true and living God, and they were the only monotheists in the world, as far as we know. They were the only ones who worshipped a single God. Everybody else worshipped multiple gods. In fact, most people in the then-known world in the Mediterranean region looked at Jews as they actually called them atheists because they only believed in one God. Everybody else Jupiter and Zeus and Hermes and Mercury and on and on and on. And so there was, there was an enmity between them that seems, doesn't seem to be in play here because the elders go to Jesus and they make their pitch this way. You should do this. He deserves to have you heal his servant because he loves the Jewish people. And he's built a synagogue for us. Now, I want you to get a contrast here between what they are saying to Jesus and what's said next by the soldiers, the uh, servants. They come to Jesus saying, he's earned it. They come to Jesus saying, he deserves something. He's entitled to something. And there's a contrast between that and the servants saying, when they, they show up, Jesus is turned around and he starts going to the man's house. The servants come and they say, our boss doesn't want you to come. He doesn't, he doesn't think he's worthy of the honor of meeting you. He doesn't think he's worthy even of having you come to his house. 
He says, just go ahead and, and say the word from where you're at, and he knows it'll be done. What a contrast there between religion and Christianity. I do something, I've earned something. I put an investment in, I get a return back. And make no mistake about it, all of us, by virtue of the fact that we are human beings, are bent to be religious rather than to be Christian. Because we want so much to be able to go before God and tell him, I did this for you. I stopped doing this because of you. Oh, and I, I did this, and, and now you should do this for me. Quid pro quo relationship. I put it in the bank. I get it back plus interest. And here are the monotheists saying he deserves this. And here's the pagan saying... No, I just need grace. I just need grace. Because I don't, I haven't earned anything. I don't deserve anything. If uh, any of you are on the uh, mailing list of Scott and Melissa Zook, or uh, missionaries in Tanzania, you got an email this week. And it's got to, told a story about uh, a group of translators that are getting together in Tanzania uh, from five, uh, sorry, eight different language groups, and they're all working together um, on the translation of the book of Romans. And Scott tells a story about one of the Tanzanian translators. His name is Damas Mwashateti. I hope I have that right. He speaks Naiha. And this is what he said. He said, because my people do not understand well about grace, we need the book of Romans desperately because my people do not understand well about grace. But when they read Romans carefully in, their, in the language they know well, their mother tongue, they will understand the place of grace in the Christian life. Now, how Christians will stop depending on their works to earn favor before God. And I wonder how much of us are still. We sing about the songs of the cross and the work of Christ and the shedding of his blood, the sacrifice for sin, and yet still deep down believe that what has taken place is an exchange. Not the biblical exchange, but an exchange of my goodness or improvement, and then I get salvation. Oh, what a wonderful story. A pagan man gets it better than the monotheist. Who do you expect? God to bless. People like this soldier or the religious tried and true who have stacked up merit upon merit upon merit, almost reaching to the skies of heaven <laughs> to which God says, I'm going to scatter them because they should never be able to build a house of merit before me. Who do you expect God to bless? Are there people in your work group the people in your bus, people in your neighborhood, like, well, God would never have anything good to do for them. And who do you expect to have faith? Now, I'm trying to imagine what it would have been like to have, be a Jewish person in the crowd following Jesus and hear Jesus say, 
about this Roman army officer is pagan. But his faith is exemplary. Now again, Jews think differently about pagans than they do other Jews. That might sound obvious, but I don't think we can grasp the magnitude of how they thought differently about them in general. And it was all through their history. God had said again and again and again, I have certain barriers for you with the neighboring peoples. And the main one is, you don't go to the Hittites to get a wife. You don't go to the Amorites to get a husband. You don't intermarry with these other people because they're all idol worshipers. And I know that if you marry them, one day your spouse is going to say, oh, honey, can't you come to my church this week? And Solomon was the classic example. 300 wives, all of them pagans. And he builds, not only does he go to church with them, he builds a church for each one of them. And God says, so no intermarriage, because that will always lead to idolatry. But God did not say, I don't want to have anything to do with them. If I were to ask you where the first place in the Bible that the Great Commission is declared, what might you say? Matthew 28, 18 to 20, Luke 24, Acts 1, 8, Gospel, New Testament. You'd have to go back way further, back to the book of Genesis. Genesis chapter 12, first three verses, when God called Abram out of a pagan environment, out of a world near Iraq, and said, I want you to go Canaan. I'm going to make a great nation out of you. He says, all these, makes all these promises. I'm going to... I'm going to give you many, many descendants. I'm going to make a great nation out of you. And at the end of that, he says, and through you, meaning your lineage, your descendants, through you, I'm going to bless the entire world. He's not talking about Isaac. He's not talking about Jacob. He's not talking about King Saul or David or Solomon. He's talking about Jesus. And time and time again in Genesis, he repeats these promises, not only to Abraham, but to his sons, Isaac and to Jacob. And throughout the Old Testament, there were times when God was reminding Israel, I didn't say that you're not supposed to have anything to do with those people. You're just not supposed to marry them. I want you to reveal my glory to all these other people. I want you to tell them, uh, give them the light that you have. And so God tries to raise up a prophet by the name of Jonah and tell him, I want you to go to these non-Jews and preach to them that they have to repent. And Jonah says, okay, let me pack my bags. I'm on my way. Only he was on his way the other way from Nineveh, where he was supposed to go. God says, well, I care about people that aren't Jews too, by the way. You read passages like Psalm chapter 96 where um, the psalmist writes about declaring the praises of God to the nations, about telling the works of God to the nations. That's a missionary psalm. The fact that Israel was by and large not missionary was not because God didn't give them the assignment. You know, we wrestle today about uh, are we doing a better job as a church invading the world or is the world doing a better job invading the church? And Israel had that problem. 
the pagan peoples around them did a lot better, much more successful job of invading Israel than Israel did in invading the surrounding pagan peoples with the love of God. And so the Jewish people, by the time of this incident, have in their minds, God does not like Gentiles. And when Jesus said, remember back in Luke 4, when Jesus was uh, preaching in the synagogue in his hometown of Nazareth, he's reading Isaiah chapter 61, first couple of verses, which is a messianic uh, prophecy. He's talking about the day coming when when God's going to do special things for the poor and God's going to open the prison cells of, the, uh, of those who are imprisoned. Good things are coming. This is the, the um, messianic age of jubilee. And then Jesus says, and this is being fulfilled in your hearing today. And they go like, huh? They were troubled by that because they knew that Jesus was declaring he was the Messiah and they weren't sure about that. This is a guy that grew up in our hometown. He's nothing special. And they start to ask some questions about him, but then it got worse. And Jesus starts to talk to them about things that were in their Old Testament from the past where God went and not only ministered to Gentile people, but he sought out Gentile people above and over Jewish people. And so he cared for the widow from Zarephath. And so he healed Syrian army officer, Naaman of leprosy. Didn't do that with Jewish lepers. And, and, get, and their reaction was not, ho-hum, let's go have, home and have lunch. Their reaction was, I can't believe he's talking that way about Gentile people. Quick, let's grab him, take him out to the hill, the outside of town, and throw him over. They were so upset about what he was saying about those people that they were ready to murder him. And the only reason they couldn't kill him is, his time had not yet come, and the Bible says he just walked through them and escaped. This is the mindset of the people that are behind Jesus when he turns around and he tells them about this army officer and his faith and says it's the gold standard. He has more faith than you folks do, he said. He has more faith than anybody I've found in all of Israel. If we were in that crowd, only it was a crowd today, who would those people be for us? In the late 90s, um, actually, yeah, late, uh, early 90s, sorry, there was a man arrested on the streets of Milwaukee. And when officers went to his house, they found bodies and parts of bodies in his home. Some in the freezer. Jeffrey had killed a person in 1978. He got kicked loose somehow. Uh, they didn't know he had killed him. He got kicked loose. He was arrested numerous times over the next 10 years, nine years. In 1987, he killed again. And in the next four years, he would kill 16 teenage boys, young men. And once he was arrested, he copped to all of those, admitted that he had 
killed all the, those young men. He had sexual things that had developed in his heart, and he, he was doing sexual things. He was uh, dismembering the bodies. There was cannibalism involved. It was as horrific as anything could possibly come out of Hollywood. And in 1991, he was put on trial and sentenced to 15 consecutive life prison terms. And Jeffrey Dahmer went to jail for three years. In 1994, he was killed by another inmate. Somewhere in those three years, a man who had served time in a Kansas penitentiary for theft, who had come to know Christ, began to correspond with Dahmer. And eventually, Jeffrey Dahmer made a profession of faith. And this other man that was corresponding with him uh, reached out to try to find a pastor who would go into the prison and baptize Dahmer. <laughs> and the first one turned him down, and the second one turned him down, and the third one turned him down, and the fourth one turned him down. Eventually, he found a pastor who was willing to do it. You can still go online, YouTube, and see the interview that Dahmer and his father did with, uh, I forget which network it was. And obviously, I don't have the insights of God, but I think this man was the real deal. And that it's possible that one of us who know Jesus could be neighbors to him in heaven. Now, how you are processing that right now is God revealing to you and me something about our hearts? Because in our minds, we have the prototype of someone that we should expect could come to faith. You know, we look at the good, moral, upstanding person, we, yeah, I mean, he's almost there anyway. She's almost there anyway. So we look at somebody that grew up in a Christian home. Should we expect that person to have faith? Sure. Somebody that went to a Christian school, somebody who was homeschooled? Yes. Somebody who was a serial killer? No. Somebody who's promiscuous? No. Somebody's a drug addict? No. Somebody served time in prison? No. Somebody's an atheist, gay, Muslim? No. And that spirit affects both our praying and our testifying. Who is it that, let, let's talk about what we want. Who is it that we want to have faith? And are there others that we don't, <laughs> we'd never articulate it this way, but we don't want to have faith. That we don't want to share our faith with, that we don't, have, we don't want to share our fellowship of faith with, we don't want to share our future with. And yet here's this picture of this pagan man with great faith who recognizes his unworthiness. I, brothers and sisters, I'm convinced this is where this starts. 
correcting what we're feeling or maybe feeling. This is where this starts. To recognize the absolute undeserved nature of God's grace poured out on us in Christ. And if there's even a smidgen of feeling like we have some sort of leg up on somebody else, even a smidgen of an idea that I have something to bring to God as opposed to all that God has brought to me in Christ. It's going to color that perception. Let me close with a passage out of 1 Peter chapter 1. I'm, I'm, conf- I'm convinced that this all swirls around a deeper and deeper understanding of the grace of God and that it The fact, if you're a Christian, the fact that you are saved is the result of God from start to finish. Not you, not me. That God takes the initiative. What did Jesus say um, in um, Mark 10? I have come to do what? To seek and to save the lost. He didn't say, I come to meet people that are coming to, to, I come to seek them out, to save them. In verse 2, he says in 1 Peter 1, God the Father knew you and chose you long ago. And his spirit has made you holy. The spirit does the work in us as a result, as a result of the spirit's work. You have obeyed him and have been cleansed by the blood of Jesus Christ. In other words, we were nothing. We had nothing. We brought nothing to the table. God chased us down. C.S. Lewis calls God the hound of heaven. And he always gets his man, his woman. Oh, brothers and sisters, seeing seeing, uh, us as standing on the same ground as this person you work with on the same level footing before the cross as the person you go to school with because we all bring nothing. It can be life-changing in our love for, in our speaking to, in our interceding for all of those that God has sovereignly put in our space for the glory of God and the salvation for all people. Let's pray together. Nothing in my hands I bring, simply to the cross I cling. Not by might, not by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord. Not what we have done, not what we are doing, not what we will do, but what Jesus finished on the cross. He didn't cry out, it has started. He didn't say, I've begun it. He said, I've, it's finished. Yet to all who believed him, to, to those who received him, he gave the right to become children of God. And there is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. Oh, God. Give us a heart of hope for all kinds of people in all kinds of circumstances, with all kinds of baggage, with all kinds of problems that we don't understand. A kind of love that only can come from you.